0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. As always, it's a pleasure for me to be here before you. And yes, the catechism lesson or the um, the systematic theology lesson has been extended to a sermon. But before we begin, let's first and foremost go to the Lord, our God, in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this time that we get to spend in your word. Learning about what salvation brings. God, I pray and I ask that you may equip me to be able to clearly teach and preach what your word so clearly states. Lord, I pray that all those who are hearing, both in this building right now and virtually, Lord, that their eyes and ears may be open to understand and and hear and see what your word contains. Lord, I pray that you may Um, guide us in that this may be a moment of of edification, God. So again, thank you, God, for this moment and this time, and may you be honored and glorified as your word is preached. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So over the last, eh, give it about two months, I would say, between myself and Jason, you know, we've been spending time talking about this doctrine of salvation, and if you remember with Jason, time that he spent, he spent primarily discussing the, um, the accomplishment of redemption by Jesus Christ itself. And what exactly Christ's redemption brought. Remember, our sins alienated us from God. We were guilty as a result of our sins. And as a result, Christ came and accomplished redemption. And in that redemption, It brought about a number of different things. It satisfied the wrath of God. It atoned for our sins and it brought us into right relationship with him. Propitiation, expiation and reconciliation were those things that were accomplished through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I've been mentioning over the last couple of weeks is that as necessary and as important that it is for Christ to accomplish what he did in our redemption, that redemption accomplished by Christ doesn't benefit us if it's not applied to us. And this is where the work of the Holy Spirit, as we've talked, shines forth because it is in his primary, though not exclusive work, that the benefits of redemption are now applied effectually to us. And this is what we see in our salvation. Now, if you recall, one of the things that I've also labored to, to bring home to you is the fact that salvation isn't just one singular act. It is not one momentary time, but it's a process. It's a series of acts. And this is what we know as the order of salvation or the ordo salutis to be technical. And then within this order of salvation, as I mentioned, there's a series of acts, effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, which includes repentance unto life and saving faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance in holiness, and then finally our glorification. All of this is included within that ultimate plan of salvation. Now, last Lord's Day, we spent time talking about the first two acts in the order of salvation, effectual calling and regeneration. And if you remember, as it pertains to effectual calling, we saw that what effectual calling is, is that work of God the Father in which all those who were elected before the foundations of the world, God now in time and space, Now, summons, draws to himself through the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration so that those whom he has called can now answer the call and trust in Christ. And we learn that even though the father, the scriptures does tell us the father is the initiator of the call. It does involve all three members of the Godhead in order for that call to be effectual. And we also saw how with that call, that effectual calling, the word is so necessary. Remember, I gave the example of Lydia, how, yes, God did open her heart, but he opened her heart to receive the gospel that was preached by Paul. So though God is the one who is doing the drawing, he does it through his word, that is the scriptures. And then we saw also regeneration. And remember, regeneration is that work of the Holy Spirit, whereby now God takes that heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. God takes now that will that was enslaved and now renews it. God takes that mind that was darkened and now enlightens it in his knowledge. And we saw that throughout the Bible, there are many different phrases that are used to convey the truth that is regeneration, For example, being born again, like we saw in John chapter 3, conveys the same idea as regeneration. Being made alive, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, conveys the same idea as regeneration. Being a new creation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 conveys the same idea as regeneration. And it is in that work of regeneration, again, that a person who was once darkened, dead, stony heart, is now made alive to understand and embrace the gospel. Now, being as effectual calling and regeneration are the first acts in this overall process of salvation, we have to now take a look at the next act, which is the logical byproduct of God's effectual calling and regeneration. And by that, what I'm talking about is conversion. Now, Many of us have a perception of conversion that, to be honest, is based more on Christian movies than Christian theology. Now, we've all heard people give moving testimonies of their conversion where, you know, they were once addicted to drugs. They were a murderer, a criminal doing, you know, who knows what. And then by the power of God, they were brought out of that life and into Christ. I mean, there are stories in the Bible of people like that. For example, Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He, for, he was there overlooking Stephen when he was being executed and killed. And he did have a radical conversion. Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus. Now, stories like this are very moving to hear because of how deep in despair those people were prior to their conversions. And in me bringing this up, I am not trying to say that those aren't examples of conversions. I'm not trying to say that when we hear these stories of people who were in drugs, who were caught up in debauchery and all of that, and then God converts them, that that's somehow a lie. That is not what I'm trying to say. Because they do, I believe, show the power of God to bring his elect out of that destructive path and into salvation. My point in bringing it up is that we don't want to reduce conversions to just those types of experiences. Because the reality of the fact is that most people who turn to Christ do not have those type of experiences. And listen, I'm a father and I'll be real. I don't want for Noelle to have that type of conversion experience, mainly because I don't want her to have that type of sin experience. I don't need for her to talk about coming out of drugs and everything like that. No, I'd rather have her have a boring conversion experience. But see, if we reduce conversion to just those types of experiences, then what you'll end up having are genuine Christians doubting their salvation because they did not have this conversion experience. Or on the flip side, you'll have people assuming that they're fine with God because they weren't those drug abusers or those criminals. So we want to rightly understand conversion to not fall into one of those two ditches. So that being said, what is conversion? Well, for one, Conversion is the fruit of regeneration. Remember, de- regeneration is that internal work by the Holy Spirit. And in God drawing us to himself and regenerating us, this was not done, remember, as an end of itself. Rather, this was the first step in the overall process of salvation to bring us to our ultimate end, which our ultimate end is our glorification. And if we look In the book of Ephesians chapter one, verses three through four, we see Paul writing as such. He tells us this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He says the same thing again in the same letter in the book of Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 25, when he talks to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy, and blameless. So we see in both of these passages the fact that we were chosen in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless. So conversion, which entails repentance unto life and saving faith, those are the two components or aspects that we are talking about when we're talking about conversion. That's the visible fruit of God's work in drawing and regenerating us. All those whom God does his internal work in and only those will produce these fruits. A man prior to God's intervention has a will that is wholly dead and a disposition that is totally against God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight, verses six through seven, for the mindset on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law for it is not even able to do so. It can't, it can't. But see, when God intervenes, that person's will is changed and is now enabled to do what it once refused to do, which is believe in Jesus Christ. John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says that without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. So you see that. Prior to regeneration, it's impossible for them to believe. But once God regenerates them, it is impossible for them not to believe. That is the power of God. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might, not maybe, you know, will come to me. And the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. So all those whom have been called, who have been regenerated, will come. And that process in which they do come is that process of conversion. Now, I mentioned, obviously, that conversion entails two aspects, repentance unto life and saving faith. Now, although we distinguish them in theology for teaching purposes and for clarity's sake, it is important to know that they are two sides of the same coin. So you do not get one without the other. A person doesn't have saving faith if he never repents. And a person doesn't repent if he doesn't have saving faith. Within the entire act of conversion, you need both repentance unto life as well as saving faith. And if you're missing one of those two components, you aren't converted. Our confession and faith in chapter 15, section 1 tells us that repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. So both, repentance and faith. And the reason for this is is quite simple. Two reasons why both are necessary. The first, let's take a look at what happens when repentance isn't preached. You get this notion that we see nowadays of easy believism, easy decisionism. Now, what I mean by that, This is when a person makes a decision for Christ, decides to follow Jesus, but then continues to live in sin, continues to do that which God abhors, as though God is cool with their sin because, you know, they decided to follow me. So, you know what, man, I'm just going to let all of this slide. Do what you do. You believed in me, so we're good. That's not the case at all. John tells us in 1 John 3, verse 6, no one who abides in Jesus sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So see, a person that is truly a believer doesn't choose to practice sinning. If you make a habit of sinning, guess what? You do not know Christ. And then we have Paul telling us in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we, who die to sin, still live in it? How? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus." Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So a person who is in Christ, a person who is actually united to Christ, does not make a habit of sinning, does not continue to present their body as though it um, it, it can enjoy the filth that is sin. No, they have turned from that. And that repentance is absolutely necessary. This is why we have passages like in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So repentance is a necessary component to be taught, to be preached. The flip side to that, and you don't see this as much, although it is increasing in our culture, if you preach repentance, but you ignore faith, then you get moralism. Now, why that, what I mean is where people think that because they are doing good deeds, then they're good. They're all right. They are allegedly living like Christ without believing in him. And in that, they're running opposite to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. People that think that way are forgetting what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that our most righteous acts are like a filthy garment. They forget what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Moralism. That may save a person from being murdered by his neighbor, but it will not save their souls from hell. So you need both repentance and faith. If you're missing one, you have neither. So with that being said, what I'd like to do now for the rest of my sermon is talk a little bit in regards to repentance as well as saving faith. So let's start first by looking at this doctrine of repentance unto life. Now, what that is, repentance unto life is when a sinner realizes the sinfulness of sin. In that it goes against the law of God, is sorrowful, grieving for committing that sin and hates it enough to turn from his sin and to turn to God and follow him. Our confession of faith puts it in this way in chapter 15, section two. They say, by it, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all into God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. End quote. So again, a sinner realizes. The sinfulness of his sin, the fact that he's violated the law of God, does grieve and sorrow for committing the sin, but hates it enough to change his mind in regards to it and to now turn and be obedient to God. Now, before we dive into the different aspects of repentance, let's first take a look at what repentance is not, because there's a lot of confusion in regards to this understanding of repentance. So there are two things that repentance is not. The first thing that repentance is not is worldly sorrow. You know, there are plenty of people who feel bad when they do something wrong. There are plenty of people who realize when they do something morally wrong and they feel guilty. They even express sorrow for committing the wrong. But see, sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. Feeling bad about sinning in and of itself is not repentance It's an aspect of repentance, but it's not the full scope of repentance. I mean, Judas Iscariot expressed sorrow and remorse for betraying Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, we read, Then when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He felt guilty, and he even returned the 30 pieces of silver that he got for betraying Jesus. But that remorse, that sorrow that he felt was not repentance. And we know it wasn't repentance because what happened? What did Judas do? He committed suicide. He killed himself. Repentance doesn't do that. Repentance draws you to Christ. It doesn't draw you to execute yourself, to kill yourself. So merely feeling sad for sinning is not enough to be considered repentant. I mean, it's better than, I guess, not feeling sad about sinning, but it's not the only part. I mean, how often do we talk to people, think about this, who feel guilty about doing wrong, but then their life doesn't change. They feel bad, they cry about it, and then they move on. They just feel good Letting someone know that they did something wrong, but it doesn't drive them to change. It does not force them to look at their state with God and turn to Christ. See, this type of sorrow, see, rather than drawing a person to Christ, makes them turn like Judas, basically. It draws them to death. So repentance isn't just sorrow, isn't just grief in and of itself. Also, repentance isn't penance, that Roman Catholic idea. And we don't realize how often we think of repentance like Catholics do with the idea of penance. You know, so often we get the idea that repentance involves a checklist of things to do in order to get back in God's good graces. You know, we committed a spiritual crime, so we got to do the time, you know, We got to do X, Y, and Z because of all these things that we did. My friends, this is not repentance. That's penance. See, with penance, the focus ends up on an external act to get back in good graces rather than a change of mind. See, that's the problem. And you know what? Don't even take my word for it. Listen to what Catholic Encyclopedia itself says under the sacrament of penance. In in particular, the section on satisfaction. The absolution given by the priest to a penitent who confesses his sins with the proper dispositions remits both the guilt and the eternal punishment of mortal sin. There remains, however, some indebtedness to divine justice which must be canceled here or hereafter. They're talking about purgatory. In order to have it canceled here, The penitent receives from his confessor what is usually called his penance, usually in the form of certain prayers, which he is to say, or of certain actions, which he is to perform, such as visits to a church, the stations of the cross, etc. Alm deeds, fasting, and prayer are the chief means of satisfaction, but other penitential works may also be enjoined. The quality and extent of The penance is determined by the confessor according to the nature of the sins revealed, the special circumstance of the penitent, his liability to relapse and the need of eradicating evil habits, end quote. So you see, they have this idea that, you know what? Yes, you know, Christ, in a sense, kind of paid it all. But, you know, there are some things that you still kind of need to do if you don't want to end up in purgatory. So this is what you're going to have to do. You know, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z here. If you do these things, these other works, because, you know, the work of Christ wasn't didn't really satisfy sin, then you know what? You'll be, you'll be good. And this is where, if you understand and study Roman Catholic doctrine, from there, then they get the idea of indulgences because they would say, well, you know what? I know it might be kind of hard for you to really do all of this stuff, but you know what? The merit of Christ was enough To where, you know, we can get some of that treasury of merits from Christ through indulgences, through buying these things here. And if you buy some of these things, you know what? That'll shorten some of the time that you have in purgatory or some of your loved ones who are in purgatory. Now, obviously, we're not Catholic and we don't do none of those things. But how often? Do many of us think that, you know what, we did this here, so therefore we need to do X, Y, and Z. Here's a checklist of things that we need to do in order to get back right with God. And we think that because we're doing these external acts, because we're just doing that, that therefore we good. Forgetting that that is not what God wants. It's not works. It's the internal change of mind. That's what repentance ought to bring. Now, Repentance oftentimes will produce external acts. That is the case. I think a good example of this is with um, Z- uh, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter nineteen. You know, if you know, if you don't know the story of Zacchaeus, he is the tax collector, and as tax collector, he would oftentimes take more than what he was to take, like tax collectors today do, I guess. And you know, when he converts, he returns back all of that which he had stolen. So his repentance, his conversion did produce some external acts. So I'm not saying that repentance doesn't oftentimes produce external acts because it will. But we cannot confuse a common byproduct of repentance with a necessary act. When we do this, we turn something that ought to be an internal change of mind, producing an external effect into merely an external act without the need for an internal change. So, when we talk about repentance, again, we're not talking about worldly sorrow and we're not talking about penance where we're just doing external acts. So, let's talk about what we mean when we talk about repentance. There are three aspects that I want you to understand as it pertains to repentance. The first is the emotional aspect, which is sorrow, a conscious change of feeling. Now, this is where a person not only is aware of sin that he committed, but understands that it is an an affront to a holy God and does feel sorrow and anguish for sinning against God. See, I'm not saying that repentance won't produce sorrow. I'm just saying that it's not the only thing that it will produce. I mean, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter seven, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verses nine through 10. And listen to what Paul says. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, sorrow that is brought about by true biblical conviction produces repentance. So don't get it twisted. A person will have feelings of grief and sorrow for their sins. But see, those feelings don't just end there. They lead to an actual change. And now this brings us actually to the next, next aspect of repentance, which is the intellectual aspect or renunciation, a conscience change of attitude. See, not only does a person feel sorrow for sin that he committed, but he now has a different attitude toward that sin. He loved the sin at one point, and now he sees the sin as God sees it, as filthy, as odious. Psalm chapter 119, verse 128, David writes, therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So he hates the false way. He hates the things that God hates. So there's the intellectual aspect, the conscious change of attitude, of mindset. And then finally, there's the volitional aspect, obedience, which is now that conscious change of purpose. Once A person's mind is changed. The repentant person now endeavors to no longer follow the path of sin, but seeks now to follow the path of righteousness. Psalm 119 verse 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimony. I considered it. I thought about your ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. So it's not just staying in the recesses of his mind, but it's now moving forth into his actions, into his lifestyle. His purpose is now changed. He is seeking to now do and be obedient to what he sees God calls him to be and do. You know, I think a great example of all three of these aspects being showed forth is actually continuing in the passage that we've been reading in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. We read verses nine and 10, but I'm gonna read to you verse 11. And I want you to note what Paul writes. He says this in verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong! In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So we see in this passage the fruit that repentance brought about to the Christians in Corinth. They were made sorrowful with, a, with the strong words that Paul had brought to them in his first letter. Yet that sorrow brought about indignation. They started to hate that sin that brought the stern rebuke by Paul. That indignation led to a longing for and a zeal towards righteousness. That led to an avenging of the wrong. They changed course and did not continue in that sin. So we see the emotional aspect, the intellectual aspect, and the volitional aspect. The sorrow, the renunciation, the obedience The conscious change of feeling, the conscious change of attitude, and the conscious change of purpose, all encapsulated in this passage. Now, moving along from that. So repentance also, like most of the things, if not all the things that we receive, is a gift granted to us. By God. Now, it is different from effectual calling and regeneration, and we'll get to that, but it is, first and foremost, a gift granted to us. We see examples of this in Acts chapter 5, for example, chapters, or verses 27 through 31, where Luke writes this, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them. This is Peter and the apostles saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So we see in this passage, Peter mentioning the fact that repentance is something that was granted to them. Then we have Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Peter saying, in giving the account that he had with Cornelius, talking to the apostles, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So they saw that God granted repentance to Cornelius, to the Gentiles, And then finally, we have 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 25. Paul, writing to Timothy, saying this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Again, Paul noting, indicating the fact that repentance is something that God grants to us. That being said, it is something that God grants to us, but it is also an act whereby we are doing something in the fact that we are repenting. See, unlike regeneration and election, where that is wholly and totally an internal act, there is nothing at all that you are doing in both of these acts. A person whom God enabled, grants to repent, guess what they will be doing? They will be visibly repenting. See, the reason that Peter, in Acts chapter 11, when he was talking to the apostles, knew that Cornelius was granted repentance unto life was because he saw, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius repenting. So repentance is something that, although it is granted to us by God, does show itself in us actually repenting itself. Now, while repentance unto life, repentance again leading to ultimately our justification, while in one sense it's not a constant thing, and by that what I mean is that it, it's not a constant thing in the sense that you are constantly having to repent to be justified and stay justified. There is a sense, however, in which throughout our lives, we will constantly be repenting of sins. And the reason for that is because we are not made immediately perfect in our justification, in our definitive sanctification, but we are growing in sanctification throughout our lives. And as we grow in sanctification, what will happen is we're going to be made more and more aware of our sins through reading the word, through the influence of the Holy Spirit within us. And as we become more aware of our sins, things that we do, guess what we'll be doing? Changing our attitudes about it, grieving of the fact that we are violating God's law and endeavoring to no longer do that which grieves God. Or in other words, we will be repenting, the only time that in this sense that we will ever stop repenting is when we stop sinning. But the only time that we will stop sinning is when we are in that glorified and perfected state. So there's so much more I can say in regards to repentance. But being that I don't have unlimited time, I want to now move on from repentance unto life, that aspect of conversion, and now I'll talk about the other aspect of conversion, which is saving faith. Now, with saving faith, our larger catechism in question 72 actually gives, I think, a, a perfect, um, a good definition of what saving faith is. Now, they call it justifying faith, but basically this is one and the same. Saving faith, justifying faith. And they answer the question, what is justifying faith in this way? Again, this is the larger catechism, question 72. They say, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness. Therein herald forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of His person, righteous in the sight of God for salvation. So a person understands his plight, the fact that he is at enmity with God and knows that there's nothing that he can do in and of himself to save himself, to justify himself, he ascends to the truth of the gospel, receives it and rests upon Christ alone for his justification, for his pardon of sin. So let's, let's talk more in regards to this faith and let's first talk about the object of our faith. Because when we talk about faith, In the biblical sense of the term, saving faith, we are talking about faith that is directed at Christ. Now, this is so important to consider because there are many people around us who have faith and, you know, what, have a very strong faith. But the problem is, is that their faith is directed at the wrong object. Their faith is directed at a false god. Their faith is directed at themselves. Their faith is directed at so-called experts, so-called science. Their faith is directed at the government or any number of things. Saving faith is not that. Saving faith has Jesus Christ as its object. Anyone who has not placed their faith in Christ cannot be saved. The Bible does not know of any other type of Christian except those that place their faith in Christ. It doesn't matter that your faith in a false God is very, very strong. And so many people, unfortunately, today in our culture, believe that, you know, if a person practices another religion very, very faithfully, even if they don't have faith in Jesus Christ, because they were so committed to their false belief that God will just give them a pass, That God will tell them when they stand before him, you know, I I know you didn't believe in me. I know that you believed in like 5,000 other gods, but then not actually me. But man, you are so committed to to your religion. You are so committed to making those sacrifices, to cutting yourselves, to performing all those works. I've never seen a person so committed to worshiping this false religion. You know what? You, You can come on into heaven doesn't work like that, my friends. There is no all roads lead to Jesus. This is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. The scriptures teach in Acts 4 verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they may be saved. There is no other name. There is there is no salvation under Muhammad. There is no salvation under Buddha. There is no salvation under Krishna or whatever other Hindu false fake gods that there are out there. There is no salvation in man. There is no salvation in government. There's only salvation in one. And his name is Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul writes this. He tells the Christians in Ephesus, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul teaches us in this passage that the Gentiles at one time were strangers to the covenant of promise. They were without God and they had no hope. See what broke down that barrier and brought them to hope was not their commitment to their false religions and their false gods. The barrier was broken because of Christ. They now have hope because of Christ. See, because if their faithfulness to their false religions was all that mattered, then these people would have some hope even before Christ. But Paul said they had no hope and they had no hope because they did not have Jesus Christ. So saving faith has as its object, Jesus Christ alone. Those who never place their faith in Christ will never be saved. And I love how, how Gordon Clark puts it. He says, pleasant opinions may keep us happy for a time. Strong subjective belief may cure imaginary diseases, but it is Christ only that raises us from the death of sin Saving faith is faith in Christ, end quote. So now within this understanding of saving faith, we have three essential elements. You have knowledge, you have assent, and you have trust. So let's quickly look at each of these three elements. Let's first take a look at knowledge. Because in order to have faith, one must know what he is believing in. Faith isn't ignorant. I know for whatever reason in our culture today, when people think of faith, they think of irrationality. They think of it's a, someone just believing and believing something that doesn't make sense. They don't know anything about it. They just believe. That is not faith. Faith isn't ignorant. I mean, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard which I have entrusted to him until that day. I know who I have believed in. Not uh, I don't know. Sounds feasible. He knows who he has believed in. So faith isn't ignorant. Faith involves knowledge. Saving faith involves knowledge. But not only is there knowledge, but one must also assent to that is true. Or the, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that he is. He must assent to that truth and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So you have knowledge. But not just knowledge, you have that assent to the truth, that belief. But then you also have trust. And now trust moves one step further from assent into conviction. See, with trust, a person not only knows and believes what God says, that knowledge and belief now proceeds into actual action. You are now governing yourself based on what you know and believe. John Frame, in the systematic theology, he says it in, in, in this way. I think it's really good. He says, Satan believes quite a lot of God's revelation, maybe all of it, but he doesn't allow his knowledge of God's word to govern his thoughts, actions, and behavior. If he did, he would plead for God's mercy and ask forgiveness, but he doesn't do that. In other words, he doesn't trust in God. I want you to think about that because how many people in our culture have this satanic way of thinking? They may know about God, and actually assent to some of the truth in regards to what the Bible is saying, but yet they don't allow for that truth to actually govern their lives. They're in a sense acting like Satan. They don't trust in God. See, all three of these elements are important. And if you're missing any of these, then you don't have saving faith. If you just have knowledge, but lack belief of that knowledge as true, and you also lack trust in that knowledge, you're at best an atheist or an agnostic. If you have knowledge, and you assent to some of that knowledge, you believe some of that knowledge to be true, but you don't trust in it, congratulations, you're now a demon. James chapter two, verse 19, the demons believe and stutter and stutter. But, If you have knowledge of the truth, believe that knowledge of the truth to be true and trust in that truth, then you have saving faith. Now. So, again, those three elements, it's knowledge, the scent of that knowledge as true and then trust. All three are vital and necessary. Now, all of that being said, saving faith even though it is vitally important, is not the grounds for or the cause of our salvation. Never forget that Christ is our salvation. Faith is simply the instrument. It is the means by which we receive Christ. And I'm gonna give a not so perfect example, but I'm gonna use this example because I hope that it helps you to see what I mean when I say that faith Is not the substance, but the instrument. So imagine that you're sick and that you need a vaccination to get better. Not the ones by Pfizer or Moderna, but like an actual legit vaccination that works. How you receive the vaccine is by the doctor sticking a syringe filled with the medicine in your arm. Now, what gets you better is the medicine itself. That is the substance. The syringe is merely the instrument used to get the medicine in you. The syringe in and of itself does not get you better. In fact, if you put any other medication in the syringe, you might get even worse. That being said, the medicine can't heal you apart from the doctor using the instrument to get the medicine in you. And the syringe is the instrument by which you receive what actually heals you. The medicine itself. Likewise, faith is the instrument by which you obtain the substance of your salvation, which is Jesus Christ. It's like Paul says in Ephesians two: verse eight through nine, "For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast." So again, faith is not the substance, but it is the instrument by which you receive the substance, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. Now another important component in faith, how you obtain that faith, and it is the word of God. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to take a look at verses 13 through 15 because I think this so clearly explains the necessity of the word starting in verse 13 of chapter 10. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then would they call on him in whom they have not believed? How would they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So you see in this passage, Paul asks a series of very important questions. We know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But wait a minute. How would these people call on the Lord if they don't believe? But wait a minute. How would these people even believe in the Lord if they never heard of Him? But wait. Wait one minute. How would these people even hear if there's no preacher talking to them about the Lord? But wait. Wait one minute. Why would a preacher just go out without being sent? See, a person will not believe in a person they never heard of. Like I mentioned last Lord's Day with Lydia in Acts chapter 16. You know, did God open her heart? Yes. But did she, as soon as her heart opened, just magically just know all this stuff in regards to Jesus? No. What happened? What happened after her heart was opened? Who was there? Paul. Why? To preach to her, to give to her the word of God, to give her the gospel message. It is through the word of God preached that a person hears the gospel message and is saved. You can't disconnect the gospel preached from faith. It is through the gospel preached in the word that a person gains the knowledge about Christ in order to believe and trust in him for salvation. John Calvin in his Institutes writes it in this way. He says, there is an inseparable relation between faith and the word and that these can be no more disconnected from each other than rays of light from the sun. So in other words, if you want heat, well, you kind of need the sun to get that. You can't get heat apart from the sun. In the same way, you want faith? Well, you need the word of God, because that's how you hear about Jesus and his work and what he did and what's required of you. Ephesians 1 verse 13, Paul writes, in him you also... After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see how the gospel helped to bring about their salvation. Now, did the Bible directly save them? Oh, again, it's Christ who's our salvation. Christ is our substance. But it was in the Bible that the truth about Jesus Christ was communicated to them from which they exercise their faith. Like Paul says in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, you know, as we bring all of this now to a close, you know, as with effectual calling and regeneration, Repentance unto life and saving faith are aspects of the order of salvation that are essential in bringing us from that state of sin into that state of glorification. In our conversion, we turn from our sins and turn to Christ. But, you know, since this message was spent on dealing with repentance and faith, I don't want to end without making a plea to all those who have not trusted in Christ. Because the Bible makes it emphatically, emphatically clear that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is good. Now, you may think that you are good based on your clean life, but see, the standard for good isn't based on your perception. It's based on God's reality. It's based on his standard. And when you just take one of your days and you examine it by God's standard, you will find out that it was chock full of sin. You have violated it every step of the way. Solomon was so right when he says in Ecclesiastes that you will not find a man on earth who is righteous, but yet never sins. Now, you might think, well, I know I'm not perfect. No one is. But you know what? I'm a pretty decent guy. I mean, I'm not Hitler. Better than Attila the Hun. I'm sure God would just let me into heaven. And you know what? If you think like that, please, my friend, think again. Because the standard isn't, did you have more deeds, good deeds than bad deeds? The standard isn't, are you just better than Hitler? Are you just better than a rapist? Are you just better than Stalin. That's not the standard. The standard is did you sin at all? In your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, did you violate God's law? If the answer is yes, even if it's just a little sin, you are guilty and you must pay for your sins. And the Bible tells us what that payment for sin is. It's death. And it's not just death and then nothingness. It is eternal death. If you are guilty, you will pay for your sins forever in hell. That is your state. There is no other payment for sin that you can make other than death. You can't do more good deeds. You can't do more works. You can't pay more money. Nothing. Now, you might be thinking, All right, but God is loving. I mean, He's not gonna really punish me forever, is He? I mean, God is love. Now, it is true that God is love, but it's also true that God is just. And because God is just, it would be unjust for Him to just let sin slide. Just like it would be a miscarriage of justice. If you had a judge, let a murderer go, because you know what? He built an orphanage. So I know, he, I know he murdered 500 people, but you know what, man? He fed the poor. He built an orphanage, so you're all good. It would be a miscarriage of justice if a judge did that. So in the same way, it would be a miscarriage of justice if God did not punish sin. He doesn't let sin slide. See, God's attribute of love does not negate his attribute of justice. If you are guilty, you must pay for your sins. But there is a way of escape. And that is through Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus Christ into the world because there was none on earth who was righteous and able to keep his standards. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself, descended from his throne, took on human flesh. He was born out of a womb of a virgin in a place where animals lived, in a city that oftentimes gets overlooked, even by the Jews. He lived the life that we were incapable of living. He did no sin at all. Being that he actually did what we were incapable of doing, he was able to give his life as a substitute for sin for us. God took Jesus, placed those sins of all those whom he loved on Christ and killed Jesus. His death atoned for the sins of all those whom God loved. It appeased his wrath, it satisfied his wrath. Not only that, but Jesus' righteousness was also placed on those same people. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross, he uttered three words. It is finished. All that was necessary to atone for our sins, he accomplished. All that was necessary to satisfy the wrath of God, he accomplished. All that was necessary to bring us into a right relationship with God, Christ Accomplished on the cross. But the story doesn't end at his death. Jesus Christ, after being in the grave, rose again from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he defeated death. The sting and pain of death no longer applies to those he died for because he conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? because you have none, it is indeed finished. Since he did all that was needed to accomplish our redemption, all you must do is trust in Christ. Turn from your sins and look to the one who died and rose so that you may live. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he lives for you. Believe that you are only saved in him because he is your only hope of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who bled, who died, and who rose again for you, and you will be saved. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.